2004, and Tom Cruise and Jamie Foxx are running around Los Angeles in the middle of the night in a cab, killing people. Collateral, coming up. Hey, come on, I'll take it. I got five stops to make. What's your name? Max. Max, I'm Vincent. I'll meet you in the alley behind the building. Oh, no! What the hell? You killed Red light, Max. Hold on, hold on. Man, you were gonna drive me around tonight and never be the wiser, but we're in the plan B. Now, we gotta make the best of it. Improvise, adapt to the environment. Whatever, man, we gotta roll with it. You just met him once and you kill him like that? But I should only kill people after I get to know them? I'm not up for this. <laughs> what are you gonna do about it? Yeah, so this is... This is Collateral. This is a movie that I don't think I've seen it since it first came out, since it first really hit. And on my first viewing, I walked away from this thing thinking I hated it. And I've ignored it for 20 years. I don't know why I thought I hated it. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But it just it just really didn't stick with me. And then I rewatched it for this. And man, I really like this movie. As I should have. I mean, this is Tom Cruise. This is Jamie Foxx. This is a Michael Mann picture. There's no reason that I shouldn't like this movie. And I absolutely really enjoyed watching this movie. And I can't imagine that I spent the last 20 years avoiding it. Because whatever happened to me in 2004, I wound up not liking this movie. It's crazy. So this movie's got a really weird kind of origin story. Stuart Beatty, who at the time was like 17 years old, Australian kid, uh, apparently was in a cab ride and he had this idea about like an assassin driving around in this cab. So he wrote a treatment. He, he wrote a screenplay. Um, he wound up coming to L.A. and getting involved in a, in a screenwriting program. Gave it to his instructor. She read it. Apparently she got it to Edge City, which is a production company run by uh, Frank Darabont, who had directed Starshank Redemption and a couple other people. And, and the point of Edge City was they were there to basically make cheap movies for HBO. That was kind of their business model. Uh, so Edge City set it up and ran it by HBO. HBO passed on it. Apparently the script kicked around for a while. It wound up at DreamWorks. A couple other people saw it and started to like it. Um, the story was originally in New York. It had changed to L.A. Uh, I think it works better in L.A. We'll talk about that in a little bit when we get into the movie. Russell Crowe was attached to it. He was interested in playing the Vincent role, and he's the one who brought Michael Mann into it to direct the film, but eventually Russell Crowe walked away from it and man brought Tom Cruise in who was kind of at a weird point in his career right then. You know, Tom Cruise had obviously had some real early success with taps and the outsiders coming into risky business, all the right moves, legend, um, obviously top gun. Now he's really, he's kicking he makes top gun with, with Tony Scott. He makes color of money with, Martin Scorsese, he's making Cocktail, he's making Rain Man, Born on the Fourth of July. You know, he's got a, a lot of good stuff going on. He makes uh, 
a few good men with Rob Reiner. You know, he, he makes the firm. He gets into Mission Impossible with Brian De Palma. I mean, he this guy, you know, Jerry Maguire's huge. So he's working with all these top directors. He's kicking. He's really going. And then he gets into the early 2000s, and it's things start to slow down a little bit. You know, Mission Impossible 2, Magnolia, not big hits. Eyes Wide Shut, probably not a big hit. Vanilla Sky, we've done Vanilla Sky. Decent film, but not not a huge hit. You know, Minority Port was good. Um, but then he gets into, he does like The Last Samurai, which is in the year before this. And this is kind of in the middle of kind of that downstretch, and he's still, you know, he's three years away from Tropic Thunder, and... Still, you know, 2011 before he gets into Ghost Protocol, and now Tom Cruise is back. So, you know, these early 2000s are kind of a kind of a dry spell for Cruise, and this is um, an interesting role for him in that period, I think. Anyway, so originally the uh, the role of Max was uh, supposed to go to Adam Sandler. So there's a world somewhere where this is a Russell Crowe Adam Sandler movie. But we didn't get it. We got Jamie Foxx, who was really hot at the time. You know, he's already done 99. He does Any Given Sunday with Oliver Stone. He does, in 2001, he does Ali with Michael Mann. He does another couple other movies. He does Shade. He does Breaking All the Rules. He does Bait. Um, And this year, 2004, he's got this movie with Michael Mann. And he's also got Ray coming out. Uh, with Taylor Hackford. So this is a big year for, for Jamie Foxx, and he's really kind of on fire. Jada Plinkett Smith is kind of on the uptick as well. She, you know, she gains kind of wide popularity in 99, or sorry, in what, 2001 with uh, with the two Matrix movies. You know, so this is, this is a pretty crazy cast. You know, we got Mark Ruffalo, who is, he's another up-and-comer. Um... The only real question mark I have in this is is Peter Berg, who acts like not only why is he in this movie, but he's acting like he doesn't even want to be in this movie. Um, Mark Ruffalo, originally, that part was supposed to be Val Kilner, who was briefly attached to it and stepped away. So we almost had a Val Kilner-Tom Cruise reunion. Uh, he stepped away from it. Ruffalo comes in. Dennis Farina was supposed to be in this. He was going to be the uh, the Bruce McGill part. Um, he stepped away because of uh, conflict with Law & Order, so McGill comes in, always reliable. And so we've got our cast here, and Javier Bardem, who we will talk about in a little bit. Another interesting piece of pre-production, this film, uh, this movie was shot on the uh, Viper Film Stream digital camera. It's one of the first movies, and I think it's man's first movie, that is all digital, almost all digital. And the reason that he decided to shoot this this way is because he knew he'd be shooting at night in L.A. And L.A. at night has got this weird patina to it coming from the lights of the city and the clouds that are over the city in the evening, the weather patterns and and whatever off the ocean. It's got this weird kind of magenta patina to it. And he felt that a film camera could not capture that the way that he wanted it to. So Mann and his two, um, his two cinematographers, Dion Beebe, Paul Cameron, they decide they're going to shoot this digitally. The exception being the, uh, the footage inside the nightclub 
that that scene is shot on film uh, on 35 millimeter film because he wanted a particular kind of grainy look to it but the rest of the film was all shot digitally so this film opens in 2004 it was a huge hype and i think that's probably part of the reason i didn't like it is i was just disappointed by it they were pushing this film pretty heavily at the time there were you know always ads and this is going to be the most amazing film you've ever seen and this is going to be incredible Back in the day, they had these, like, you know, magazine shows, like Entertainment Tonight and stuff, and they were always doing features on this particular film, and there's always footage of it around, and you could always, you know, there's always stuff getting leaked out of it, and it was such a huge deal, and, and it kind of opened, we'll talk about its opening um, at the end, like we usually do, but it was kind of opened all by itself, and it was supposed to be this amazing thing, and it was, I guess it was fine, but it just really was kind of a letdown to the hype. And I also think that this movie was a bit of a slow burn. And at the time, there was this idea of action movies that they, they need to jump you right in. And this, this film takes a little while to get going. I think at the end of the day, I think it's better for it. But um, that might have been part of the problem, too. Uh, and we'll talk about the critical response to it. It's okay. It's not great. So, you know, let's get into the film. I mean, let me start with saying that. I think this movie works so much better in Los Angeles than it would have worked in New York. And a big part of the reason for that is LA's got this, this, or at least this film has got this sense of uh, desolation and isolation and, and distance. It's kind of like it's these two guys alone in this cab and they're riding around and their interactions are fairly minimal. And there's times where it just seems like they're like the only two people around. You're not going to get that in New York. New York is a very walkable city. There's always people around, even in the middle of the night, unless you're going to like some really weird neighborhoods, there's always people around. I mean, I know I've worked in New York. I've lived in New York. There's, you know, the city never sleeps. And I just don't think you would get that same sense of isolation that you get in this movie with these two guys. And also the distance, you know, when they're talking about driving from here to there and, and you see them on these, these stretches of road and they're just kind of driving along and there's nobody around. I don't think you get that in New York. And if you set that up for New York, I don't think it's particularly believable. One of the things that drives me crazy about TV shows set in New York, you know, like Law and Order or Blue Bloods or something like that is, you know, these guys are always out on the street and there's nobody on the street. And I've spent a lot of time in my life in New York City. That never happens. There's always somebody around somewhere. So I think L.A. really works for this. And then and then there's always, like I said, there's this this patina on L.A. There's this this visual look of LA that I think really works well with this film and with the, with the mood of this movie. And in a lot of ways, honestly, this movie is really reminiscent of me um, to heat, you know, Mike, which I think is Michael Mann's masterpiece. Um, you know, it's really a two hander. It's really these two guys, you know, just like heat is Vince and Neil. Maybe Michael Mann's got a thing with the name Vince. I don't know, but, you know, Al Pacino and and De Niro, um, 
it's really about them and their relationship and them going through whatever they're going through kind of together, even though they're adversaries. And this is kind of the same thing with this is, you know, you have Max and Vincent and they're going through this thing. The really interesting or kind of weird thing about Max, you know, Max is ostensibly the hero in this movie. He's your, you know, he's kind of the guy that's taking you through this movie. And at the end of the day, he winds up to be the hero of the movie. He's the protagonist, but he's really, he's a very weak character. And I don't mean the writing. I don't mean the performance. I mean, the way the character is created. He is a weak, you know, Max is a weak man initially. And he's very kind of whiny and he's kind of whimpery. It's not what you would typically see from an action hero in a movie like this. You know, you'd, you know, you'd almost get the idea from the beginning that this guy was, you know, really strong. But he, he really, he kind of is not. You know, and Cruz, again, coming in playing off type, uh, against type is this very unlikable character. Now, Cruz has played unlikable characters before. Another Vincent in The Color of Money, you know, that, that character was not particularly likable. Born on the Fourth of July, he's not particularly likable. There's other movies that he's made, I would argue, all the right moves that Stefan is, at least in most of the movies, not particularly likable. But this, this, I mean, he's playing the bad guy here, which is not something that Tom Cruise usually allows himself to do. And I don't know if it was because of where he was in his career. I don't know if it was because he just felt like stretching um, or something in this role really spoke to him. But this is a really kind of unusual move for Tom Cruise here. So you start this um, you start this movie with this cab ride with Jane Plinkett Smith and Jamie Foxx. And it's good. I like it. They, I, I really I, I find it to be really believable. I thought they had good chemistry. I thought that they played well off each other. And I found that their their burgeoning relationship, the flirting that they were doing, I found that to be, you know, very believable. The funny part is you kind of get into the main body of the film and you, you're kind of thinking back and you're wondering why they spent so much time on that until you get to the end of the film and you realize why they spent so much time on that. But I really found that that part of the film worked for me. And then I found it worked even more for me once I got to the end of the movie, if that if that kind of makes sense. You know, Tom Cruise shows up. He's kind of off-putting in terms of Cruise. Probably the hair. You know, this this dyed white hair that he has. Again, not something that you're used to seeing on Tom Cruise. His suit, the way he's dressed, is very early 2000s L.A. And he's really... I guess trying to blend in and make himself invisible. I don't know the the hair helps him with that. So Tom Cruise being the insane person that we know Tom Cruise is when it comes to prep for his film. I mean, this is the guy who realized that he had to be on a, in a helicopter cabin on a crane and pretending to fly a helicopter goes out and learns how to fly a helicopter just so he can, you know, do it more authentically. So Tom Cruise apparently, I don't know which of these stories is weirder. Apparently, he spent weeks in L.A. stalking members of the crew to see that if he could sneak up on them and slap a post-it note on their back. And that meant that you were dead. (laughs) So I've got this vision of, you know, a white-haired Tom Cruise sneaking around L.A., running up behind people, slapping post-it notes on their back. It's absolutely nuts. The other thing, apparently, he did, 
and this is more well documented, is he somehow finagled a job as a FedEx driver and he would make he was making deliveries in LA as Vincent and trying to get to the point where people didn't recognize it. And apparently he accomplished that. He got to the point where he could he could walk into an office, make a delivery, and nobody would realize that it was Tom Cruise who was making the delivery. So props on Tom Cruise for for getting on that and getting to that point where nobody's going to recognize him. And I think, you know, so that's what he's probably going for here is this Vincent, this assassin has got to be invisible. He's got to be, um, you know, to the point where he could walk into a place, kill a guy, walk out of the place, and nobody is going to remember that he was there. Um, and I think that, I, I think he accomplishes that pretty well. I mean, you know, he blows away Daniel in the middle of a crowded jazz club and nobody really seems to notice. So I guess, I guess he's doing the right job. So you've got that, you've got that first drop, that first kill where Max is just sitting in the car being kind of weird, eating his hoagie. Um, that's what they call him in California. I think they call him hoagies. Uh, where I'm from, they call him grinders. Um, but he's eating his sandwich. He's looking through his S-Class brochure for his limo company, and this body drops out the window and lands on top of the cab. And it's it's really, if you haven't seen the movie in a while, or the first time you're seeing the movie, it's really a shocking moment. It's really, ho, oh, and now you are into the movie. Um, you know, the scene with Daniel, where Daniel is telling the Miles Davis story, is pretty incredible there's all these like vignettes throughout this film it's like kind of like you could almost take each one of these killings and kind of make it into its own thing you know so that scene where he's sitting at the table with with max and daniel and they're talking about daniel meeting miles davis and the whole thing and i'm really glad that that michael mann takes the time to spend with these um, characters, and obviously we don't do it with all of them, but that he, especially this one, he takes the time to spend with Daniel and see who this guy is and what this connection is. Of course, that's going to help to inform why these people are on a hit list. And obviously we have Mark Ruffalo, who is piecing this thing together and passing on information and getting us to the point where we realize that this is all related to a trial that whoever is on trial is eliminating witnesses. And that leads us to, at this point, you're probably starting to figure out that, oh, Annie is a federal prosecutor. She's in town for a big trial. She's probably tied up with this somehow. She, maybe she's on the list. Personally, I, I think one of my favorite scenes in this movie is the the Javier Bardem scene? Now I think it's weird, and, and it it's kind of it's kind of a big ask to believe it that Vincent would one have everything in that briefcase and allow Max to get away with it and steal it and either not have committed you know not have committed this stuff to memory or had a better solution for this, but also that he would expect that Max would be able to go in to this. Uh, place where Javier Bardem's character is and bluff his way in there and pretend to be Vincent and get the information back. Like, I lost the list. But I think Javier Bardem comes in there, and this is a guy who people don't really know him at this point. 
you know, he's he's still he's three years away from No Country for Old Men and um, Vicky Cristina Barcelona. He's not he's not a household name. And for a lot of people, this is going to be the first time that they saw him, and he knew that. And this is this is a great heat check that he does. It comes in here. I got one scene. I'm going to make it work. Apparently, he worked on that accent for a while. He wanted to sound specifically like a Mexican who had been living in the United States for a while. And so he refined his accent to get to that point. The story he tells about Pedro Negro is just absolutely amazing. There's an old Mexican tale <clears throat> that tells of how Santa Claus got so very busy looking out for the good children that he had to hire some help to look out for the bad children. So he hired Pedro and Santa Claus gave him a list with all the names of all the bad children. And Pedro would come every night to check them out. And the people, the little kids that were misbehaving, that were not saying their prayers, Pedro would leave a little toy donkey on their windows, a little burro, and he would come back. And if the children were still misbehaving, Pedro would take them away and nobody would ever see them again. Now, if I am being Santa Claus and you are Pedro, how do you think jolly old Santa Claus would feel if one day Pedro came into his office and said, I lost the list? How furious do you think he would get? Tell me, Vincent. Tell me what you think. To me, that scene is reminiscent almost of the diner scene in Heat. Um, obviously, it's not the two leads, but it's kind of like this point in the movie where you just stop and allow this this scene and this dialogue to kind of wash over you and Bardem is so good at that moment so I think where this movie really starts to fall down is in the in the third act at the end the whole building chase subway chase now the building thing is pretty cool I do have some nits to pick with it one is and this is this is really nerdy is, you know, Tom Cruise goes out to cut the power and the fuse box has got a lock on it. You don't lock a fuse box to keep it from being turned off. You lock it from, to keep it from being turned on, but whatever. Um, but the point is they're in this huge office building and their only Avenue is to get out of the building. I mean, her cell phone is in her office they can't make their way up to her office and get the cell phone, call 911. They can't find anybody else in that huge building with a cell phone. They can't hide in a closet somewhere. Uh, you know, what is Vincent going to search the whole building until he finds them? Uh, that the whole thing just didn't make any sense. And then he, you know, of all the places they could go, they could be hiding in the building somewhere. They could be up in her office. They could be out on the street. They could be running down an alley. They decide to go down the subway, and he decides to go down the subway, and he finds them, even though there's multiple trains. That whole piece seems really contrived and really doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Once you get past that, that scene on the train, the whole the whole thing, the shootout, everything. I mean, do you think Max, I'm wondering if Max thought he was going to be killed the whole time. At what point did Max think, I'm not making it out of this. Like, this guy's going to kill these five people, and then he's going to kill me because I know what he did. And he's just at a point where he's going to do whatever it takes to survive. And whatever it is, 
whatever it's going to take to protect Annie. But I do like that end piece, and I do like, you know, the idea of Vincent on the subway, I guess it's not a subway in L.A., on the train, riding around, and how long is it going to take somebody to notice him? Especially depending on what day it is and how crowded the train is. But that whole, again, it's similar to Heat, that whole showdown at the end, the two, the you know, these two adversaries kind of almost making peace or at least being civil to one another at the end when one of them is dying. Um, you know, the same as kind of the airport shootout at the end of Heat. And I kind of liked it. I, I kind of like the way that whole thing is structured. Um, so how did this movie do? So it had a budget of $65 million. It made... 101 million domestically, 220 million um, worldwide. It did not break into the top 10 that year. It's, uh, you know, it's got middling reviews. It's got an 86% on Rotten Tomatoes, which I think is fair. Uh, it's got a 71 on Metacritic, B on Cinema, uh, Cinescore. Uh, our guy Raj really liked it. He gave it a three and a half stars. He really, he really liked Jamie Foxx. He said Jamie Foxx was a, was a revolution. It did not get any Oscars, although Jamie Foxx did get a nomination. Jamie Foxx uh, wound up having a good year, though, because he did win Best Actor for his work uh, in Ray, playing Ray Charles. He was only uh, the third actor uh, to be nominated in two acting categories on, in the same year. So that's pretty interesting, and I think the tenth person overall. So I guess um, you know that's all four acting categories. Uh, he did not win best supporting actor. He was up against uh, Alan Alda for The Aviator, Thomas Hayden Church for Sideways, Clive Owen for Closer, and Morgan Freeman for Million Dollar Baby. Who won? That was the Million Dollar Baby year, which is really weird. Um, I mean, Million Dollar Baby, fine. It's a great, it's a great movie. But I mean, has anybody ever rewatched it? I mean, is anybody like sitting around on a Saturday going, "Hey, let's pop in Million Dollar Baby"? I don't think they are. But I mean, it it won Best Picture, it won Best Director, it won Best Actress, it won Best Supporting Actor. It was a juggernaut that year. Uh, Collateral was also nominated for editing, didn't win. Thelma Schoomaker won for The Aviator. It did win, uh, did win a BAFTA for cinematography um, and a bunch of critics awards and, and, you know, those types of things. So that's it. That's Collateral. Again, a very surprised, a very pleasant surprise for me in rewatching this film 20 years later and realizing that I liked it. I'm probably going to wind up having to rewatch it in the next couple of months. You know, as a Michael Mann film, you probably got to sink your teeth into it a little bit and give it a couple of rewatches to really pull out all of the uh, the nuances in it. So let's dig up the generator and see what we've got. Uh, Google's telling us it's 2003. Oh, oh, man, that's a tough year. Oh, man, especially since always wanting to kind of give preference to a comic book or a superhero movie. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I'm doing Daredevil or Hulk. Oh man, well, there's a couple. Well, there's a couple of interesting choices. Anyway, maybe we'll do a Fast and Furious movie. So I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Check out the main show as well on this feed, and I will catch you later. <laughs>